For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Yeah, so we've been working through Romans 8, and we're in this section that is all about um, growing, how to grow in your relationship with God. We've, we've categorized it in terms of being freed from the power of sin. That's the way that Paul talks about it. How do we walk with God? How do we grow and let the truth of what God has done for us, the truth of the Word of God, the power of the Spirit of God, how do we let that work in our lives to help us grow and become more patient people, more kind people, more loving people? And the progression through chapter 8 is really important because really 1 through 3 is that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that the first step is understanding that we are fully forgiven. And if we choose not to grow, God still loves us and accepts us because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. God doesn't motivate us through a fear, threat, or shame motivation. He knows that shame is not a change catalyst in our lives. Love is the only thing that really motivates us for real change. And so he has expressed unconditional love for us, which is a huge part of our center of our understanding um, of how we can let God move in our lives. And then last week, we talked about this issue of walking by the Spirit, that it's not under our own power that we can change. That's one of the, the big mistakes that, and why the uh, bookstores are filled with self-help books, right? Where everybody's got a theory about how you can change yourself and how you can be the person that you want to be and why none of it works, right? That's why there's so many books there as you go back again and again and again and you try different things and you spend lots of money and you find you're still the same you that you always were. But when you come to Christ, God says uh, he puts his spirit the same spirit that had the power to raise Jesus from the dead, that power is now at work in your life to help you be transformed into the image of his son, that he wants to help you become more like you were originally designed to be, what God had in his mind's eye when he created the human race before the fall and the garden and Adam and Eve and all of that business. He had a design that he implemented when he brought us into this world and it says that we were created in his image meaning we were supposed to reflect all the goodness of what he is and that the way to do that is to come into a relationship with God and let the spirit of God come and work in your life and we looked at three different ways the spirit can do that we call them the means of growth that the word of God uh, studying the word of God and understanding uh the mind of God helps and nurtures that spirit within you and helps you to understand more of God's purposes for you. Fellowship, spending time with other people that are on the same path, the same journey. We bear one another's burdens. We help one another move forward. Um, that that grows us. That we cannot grow as well as we should if we're not in community, connected with others who are striving for the same thing. We were not made to live autonomously uh, and, and to have these surfacey relationships. The Bible says it's not good for man to be alone. And so our relationships with each other as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ help us along that path in growing. And of course, praying. 
that the Spirit prays and helps us and teaches us how to pray, and that our personal connection with God is enhanced and begins to grow as we connect with Him more and more and learn what it's like to be able to have a conversation with the Creator God of the universe. So then we get to the end of chapter 8, where we are this morning, and we get to what we might call the fourth means of growth, which is suffering. That we can actually, as we go through this world, we are going to face suffering. There is going to be real suffering that we, um, that we have to endure. But that God can actually use that to help us on this path and help us grow. And so that brings in the big question, how do I handle the suffering of this fallen world? You don't have to be very far along in this world to be able to look out and look around and see there is a lot of suffering happening, a lot of pain. And it's not just happening out there, it's happening in here too. Our own personal experiences of, of, of being wronged, of being betrayed, of going without, of being hurt. You know, we, we all here have many stories of ways that we have suffered. And we can easily look out to the world and say, God, how can you be good? How can, how can you be just and let you know, all these terrible atrocities happen in the world? Why, God, how are we as your children supposed to think about the suffering that we see? And how can this help us grow? Well, we get to chapter 8, and we start in verse 18. And Paul lays it out this way. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He says, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so when he, he begins talking to us about how suffering relates to our spiritual growth, he says, really, it starts with the matter of perspective. And he's not talking about suffering under persecution here. Many times when the, when the Bible talks about suffering, he's saying as you go out and you share your faith and people treat you badly because you're a Christian or because you say you believe in the Bible, here's some principles. But here he's actually talking about the context is the suffering of the world. The fact that we live in a broken place and bad things happen to good people. The fact that, you know, we look out and we see that earthquakes happen, snowstorms, blizzards, tornadoes happen, cancer happens. And how are we supposed to see this in light of this great and glorious God that we read about? How are we going to live in this corrupt and broken environment where terrible things happen all the time? How does my relationship with God inform my perspective on these issues? And he says, it's an opportunity for growth. That we need to understand, and with anything that you're going to commit to that's going to be hard, we have to know what the end goal is. You know, in the moment, we, if we understood the fullness of the suffering that we're going through, it can seem very overwhelming. But when we see it in the context of the end goal, of the larger picture, then we start to put things in perspective and we gain motivation. We gain the ability to continue to suffer through under the promise or the hope that it will be worth it. And what Paul is saying is, 
is as we look out and we see the creation itself groaning, and we watch our own bodies decay in front of us, and we experience uh, the pain and the suffering of disappointment and betrayal, we remember that God has promised that one day all of that will come to an end, and the creation itself will be restored that we ourselves will be restored, our bodies renewed, and there will come a time where there is no pain and there is no suffering, where God himself will wipe the tears from our eyes and there will be love and relationship and harmony. And that time is called eternity. Once it starts, it'll never stop. It'll be that way forever, moving forward. And so what he's saying is we need perspective. It's like going to the gym. You don't go to the gym at the beginning for sure because you love pain, right? Because sweating and lifting things and, you know, the, the, the burning and the pain and all of that and the soreness afterwards, you're not like, oh, that's awesome, you know, give me that, right? That's why I go, right? You go because you believe that by going through that, the end result will be worth it. That you're working towards something much bigger that can't be accomplished with one trip to the gym. That has to be accomplished with a lifestyle change, with a choice. It's the same with rigorous scholarship. You don't pay all these money and get all these student loans to get you know, a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, a PhD. You don't go through all of that just because it's fun right? There's a purpose. There's a direction of your life. There's a career. There's, you know, education has a value in and of itself, but we make all these sacrifices and do all of this because we believe that the outcome, 30, 40, 50 years of a career that's formed and the path is open to us through that education makes it worth it. So we look at the long picture and say, I can do this. You know, I, I think it's no, more, it's no more, more obvious than in childbirth. If you look at what, uh, what your spouse goes through, you know, as I watched my wife go through nine months of pregnancy, uh, it was horrifying, you know? <laughs> I was so glad that that would not be within my realm of experience physically. You know, that whole thing, it looked really rough. And, you know, you know as well as I do, when your spouse suffers, you suffer, and that's a part of the natural order of the universe, right? And so husbands and wives, everyone who's ever had a child has gone through the indignities of pregnancy, and then what, a year, year and a half, two years of a lump that just poops and needs, right? And that's hard, and you lose sleep, and you go through that, and you know, it seems like a crazy person. Why would I do this? And then what do you do? You're like, let's do it again. <laughs> because you have the end goal in mind, right? You have a sense for the person that your child will become and the value of them becoming a, a human being and, and doing incredible things and the potential of what they are. And that makes all that suffering worth it. And you can even look back at it fondly and think, oh, when they were so little, it was so cute. They were just... Oh, you could cuddle them and you forget about the pack and play and the diapers and the car seat. Oh, the car seat, right? You forget about all those things and you just remember the joys because you keep the long picture in mind. 
He's saying the same thing, that when we face these sufferings at the hands of a fallen and broken world as children of God, we need to remember and put them in the context of the larger picture of God's promises for us. What is the goal in a Christian's suffering? As a child of God, what can this suffering accomplish in me? And how does this suffering compare against the light and promise of the eternity that God has given us? He says in chapter 8, verse 29, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. That the goal here is that we would become more and more like Jesus. That the process of walking with God is letting God work in you to chip away and slough away all the the things that are not of Him. The selfishness, the bitterness, the pride, all of those things that cause the pain and suffering in our lives. God says, I'm going to take you through your life, and if you let me, I'm going to use these different things, including suffering, to help form and shape you into being more like my son, more like you were intended to be. Suffering can help change us into more loving people. The word Christian is, uh, is not really found in the Bible. It was in the ancient world uh, used it as a nickname that was intended to be initially kind of derogatory, right? The word Christian means little Christs. And when the pagans saw the early Christians, you know, getting up and, and, and starting to share their faith and love and even dying, you know, being crucified themselves, uh, being torn to pieces in the arena because of their faith, they said, oh, look, they're, little, they're like little Christs. They're Christians. And eventually they said, the Christians were like, that's, that's pretty good. We would like to be little Christs. That is, that is the goal, according to Scripture, is that we would become like Him. And so the name stuck. But within that name, we see exactly the picture of what God is saying is he wants to make us like his son. Individual expressions of God's goodness and his truth and his love and his compassion. Going all the way back to the very beginning, it says he created us in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Both male and female, he created them in his own image to be like him. And this helps us understand. This helps us persevere and understand that our suffering is temporary. God has promised, no matter how dire it seems in the moment. And no, you know, even cancer, even death, right? As far as God is concerned, that is all in the context of the larger picture of eternal glory. And we have to return there and allow that truth to penetrate so that we can persevere, so that we can let God's purposes be accomplished even in the midst of suffering. We go back and look at what we just read in 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God, that the earth itself groans under the injustice of the current situation, but that there will come a time where we will all be set free. Creation itself 
will be set free. And we have to remember that because it's what gives us hope. And it's the promise of God that this suffering is temporary. It also helps to understand how the process works. When we say suffering, God will allow suffering in your life and that suffering presents an opportunity for growth, for change, for moving forward. How does that process work? Well, one of the ways is we we can look at some of the terms the Bible uses to describe the human condition. And it's very helpful. 2 Cor 4.16 says, I'm decaying in the outer man. And we've talked a lot in the last few weeks as we've worked through Romans about the flesh, about the part of us that's broken, right? There's the, the natural state of man, the fallen state of man. And it's sort of our outer shell. It's the crusty, broken part of us. It's the part of us that drives us to do the things that we know are bad. It's the part of us that just obeys our appetites. It's the more, the more base animal component of who we are. And that's the outer man. But then for those who are in a relationship with God, there's the promise of God that he will come and dwell inside of you. His indwelling of you, that the spirit of God comes and dwells inside of us and takes up permanent residence there because of our reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. And so one way theologians have described what the Bible talks about here is you have our condition right? Which is we have this outer shell, the outer man, and the Spirit of God dwells inside of us. And so that's one way that the Bible uses to talk about this, is we have this image of God, this power of God, this Spirit of God that's inside of us, and it's trying to find ways to come out into our lives and to impact the lives of other people. Then there's what the Bible calls our position, which is also true, that in a very real sense, we are in Christ. And that has to do with our understanding that when God looks and sees us, he sees us not as who we are, but he sees us as being in Christ, that Jesus' death on the cross paid for our sins, and that when he sees us, he sees us in the larger picture of our identity as a child of God. And you're like, well, those are kind of contradictory. No, it's two different ways that the Bible uses to describe us and the human condition. Let me show you. 1 John 4, 13. It says, by this we know that we abide in him. Right? That would be our position. We are in him and he is in us. That's our condition. Both are true. It's a matter of perspective on, how you, on what you're talking about at that current moment. So we are in him and he is in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testify that the father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. And so we take that idea of God, of Christ being in us in the outer man. And we read 22 again, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now, and not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And this is the whole thing that we've been talking about with Romans 7 and 8, that there is the Spirit of God, and we have this conflict within us. 
that we know what's right and we want to change and we try to change and we strive and we, we screw up all of our will and we determine we're going to make ourselves do better in this area. I'm going to be a more patient person. I'm going to be a more kind person. I'm going to be a more forgiving person. And we've experienced the defeat of those efforts again and again. It's that inward desire to grow and to change and to be who it is that we know God wants us to be with the outer reality of this part of myself that is in rebellion, not only against God, but against my own will. And that picture is such an important picture because if we're honest, it perfectly describes us. And so as the Bible describes this of the outer man with the spirit dwelling inside of us, and it talks about spiritual growth, it looks like this, that we can grow that inside of us. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about walking with God. And so the word of God can make it grow. Fellowship can make it grow. Prayer can make it grow. Serving other people and letting God work through us in the lives of others can make it grow. And that's why we call these the means of growth. Suffering, on the other hand, does something else. Suffering is the hammer and the chisel that knocks away the outer man. It's the experiences that leave us broken, but has the potential to let what's inside, let the power of God to begin to shine through, so that what people begin to interact with us is not the outer man, but the Spirit of God that dwells inside of us. He says in 828, we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And this is one of the most widely quoted and misunderstood passages in all of Scripture context is so important. We've just read the context. We're looking at the the context of this is suffering. That we live in a fallen world and we are going to suffer. So when it says God works all things to the good of those who love him, he is not saying if you obey God and if you follow God, then he will get rid of all suffering in your life. That's what we want that verse to mean. But it's clearly not. I mean, if you look in the Bible at the people who really follow after God, they die horrible deaths. They live in poverty and persecution. Following after God is not the path to riches and comfort in this life. When he says, I will work all things to the good of those who love me, What he's saying is even the bad things, even the suffering and the painful things in your life can be used powerfully for your good and for God's purposes. So it's not a promise that we won't suffer. It's a promise from God that all suffering can be used by him for your good. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 through 10 puts it this way. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Christ. But we have this treasure, earthen vessels. We have, in this, uh, we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of from ourselves. 
that we are like clay pots containing this eternal glory. But the pot has to be broken down and removed so that the glory can shine in. And so we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not despairing. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. And we are struck down, but we are not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our body. The outer man is constantly being chipped away and broken and moved out of the way so that more of who Jesus is can shine through in our lives. That's how suffering can play a role. And when we see it this way, it opens up a whole new perspective on this life and how to deal with the suffering that we face. So suffering chips away. And there's small things. Your car breaks down on the way to work. It's 12 degrees outside. You know, you're going to be late. Your boss is not going to understand. Uh, and you're going to be freezing. And you just think, why God? Why today? You know, why me? Woes me. And that's real suffering. Now, in light of other things that can happen, it might not be so much. Your daughter brings home a mortally wounded squirrel, which happened to me this week. You know, there are just things that happen unexpectedly. You've got your life and you're doing things and now there's a squirrel, you know, and it's, it's bleeding and it's, she's got it in a bucket in the kitchen. You know, that was my week. Uh, your laptop implodes with your CT teaching also happened this week. Uh, these are small things, right? But they have that cumulative effect of, of chipping away. How are you going to handle those situations? How are you going to respond? Are you going to respond in the flesh and take control and just feel sorry for yourself and give up? Or are you going to turn to God and say, I have not the strength or the wisdom to, to deal with this situation. How, do you, how can you work through me, God, to to help this situation turn out okay. And those are just the little things, right? Then you have being betrayed by someone you love, you know, having someone let you down, uh, have an affair on you. You have abuse, right? You have all these different ways in which people that are supposed to be for, there for us let us down. And those, again, in the same way, represent those same opportunities even though they, they strike much deeper. Your marriage could be on the brink of disaster. That is an opportunity to learn greater dependence on God, to learn forgiveness, to model Christ to your spouse. You can't be in control. You cannot make your marriage good by yourself. That's a two-way street, right? But you can be an awesome wife or an awesome husband, that is not within your spouse's control. That is only within your control. And if you've ever entertained that prospect, you've cried out, I, I would love to do that, but I just can't. I can't. And God's answer is good. But with me, you can. Will you let me move into your life? Will you learn to depend on me? Will you let me chip away the outer man and let my glory shine through to your spouse who's wronging you? You can have teenage kids, right, and uh, go through 
the challenges of that in your life. You know, there are lots of different ways, lots of different issues, uh, all kinds of ways that a fallen world comes in and chips away at the outer man. And suffering then, understood in this context, becomes something that God can always use for good. Regardless of the circumstances, He can use the suffering that comes into your life, but we have to allow for a change of perspective. To see it in the context of the larger glory of what God has promised. Second Cor 4, 16 and 17 says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though the outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. He says, you know, as these things happen and it chips away the outer self, God is constantly renewing and refreshing the inner self. That if you let God be the source of power in your life, that you have a limitless source, that you can withstand anything. Because you are connected with the creator of the universe, the God that spoke the universe into being. And so you don't need to worry about running out of resources, running out of energy, running out of hope. Because you're connected to the ultimate source of all of those things. And those things that he calls momentary light affliction, in his case, was like being beaten and imprisoned, left for dead, shipwrecked snake-bitten, rejected by his own people. Paul's own experiences are what he's talking about there. And he says, all of those things are momentary light afflictions in light of the glory of what God is doing through them. And that's the key, is understanding and having that perspective. The truth The truth is that life is pain. None of us can avoid it. None of us can escape it. Whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, you live in a fallen, broken world where the environment itself is spinning out of control and causing mayhem, where we ourselves are hell-bent on destroying one another and taking what we want. There is going to be pain and suffering. The question is, is do you want to let that pain and suffering be used for something that has eternal value and glory, for bringing love and compassion and mercy and truth into the darkness of this world? Or do you just want to suffer for no purpose and just adopt an attitude where you're going to let your bitterness and your your pain and the hurt of what has happened to you dominate who you are. Those are really the only two options that we have. Letting God use it for good or letting it dominate our lives and further corrupt us as people. So whether it's bad luck or the cruelty of others or the consequences of bad choices that we have made, God can use suffering to glorify himself and to make us more usable for his good purpose. The alternative just leaves us bitter with nothing learned, nothing gained, 
suffering for no purpose. The alternative leaves us with nothing to offer on others, just an inner brokenness and sadness and defeat. And God loves you. God is concerned that you would let that happen, that you would be made for such eternal glory and that you would allow the evil that's happened in your life to hold you back from growing into the person that he created you to be. The key is is to let God use that suffering. Yes, we are abused. Yes, we have bad marriages. We lose loved ones. Cancer happens. We are just as vulnerable to all the atrocities and pain of this world as anyone else. There is no promise for us as followers of God that we will be protected from the evil circumstances of a fallen and broken world. But we can let those things, all of those things, enable us to be a comfort to others. When there's somebody, when one of your neighbors loses a parent, if you've lost a parent, how uniquely equipped are you to put your arm around them and say, I know your pain. I know how this feels. When they lose a spouse, when they get that terrible diagnosis that we were all hoping none of us would ever get, when you have that diagnosis yourself, you become somebody who can bring a whole new perspective and the power of glory of God into the worst circumstance in someone's life. And you would not be able to do that if you were not suffering the same way yourself. And so all of our suffering, in a way, becomes an opportunity to be used in someone else's life. And that's the point. How do I let God use my suffering? Well, you have to trust that he is good. You have to trust in his promises. You have to believe in that eternal glory that awaits, that this is all going to come to an end. That as a follower of God, as a child of God, your needs are going to be met in eternity. And that comfort, believing in that truth that God is in control and as bad as it seems, I can still draw close to Him, is where you will find strength. It's so funny, our reaction, a lot of us, when we suffer, what do we do? We shake our fist at God. Why would you allow this to happen to me? You say that you're good, and yet you let this happen to me. You let this happen to my children. How can you be good? And God is saying, come closer. Let me comfort you in the midst of your suffering. Let me give you strength. And we flee from him. Because we don't understand. We don't understand that we live in a fallen world that is in, the the world itself is in rebellion against God. We have to believe his promises even more in times of suffering. And boy, does he end this chapter with one heck of a promise. Romans 8, 35 through 39, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? 
just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor death, or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a pretty comprehensive list of things that cannot shake God's love for us. And we must remember those promises Because God can seem distant. We can feel as though he's let us down. We can feel as though he's not there. When we we suffer and we let the, the circumstances of our present suffering fall out of the context of the greater picture of what God has promised. We may blame him. We may feel ashamed because so much of our suffering is our own doing. We may be looking at the consequences of our choices and concluding, I can't come to God. I'm the, crea- I'm the creator of all this suffering in my life. And God knows that and loves you just the same and wants you to come to him in the midst of that. We will see God's best. We will see the fulfillment of every promise he has given us if we persevere. If we let the fullness of how he wants to move in our lives in the midst of these sufferings we trust in him, we will look back at every one of those sufferings, every one, and say, I can see how God brought more good through that than pain and how he made it worth it. Romans 5, 3 through 5 says, and not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. It's hope that we find in the midst of suffering. And we get that by understanding it in its larger context and learning to persevere. I want to close with just a few disclaimers about this. One, we are not suggesting that we become ascetics. Yes, suffering is uh, an essential part of how we grow, but we live in a world that is filled with opportunities to suffer. We need not seek them out. We don't need to go and cause suffering. That's what asceticism is, right? And we've had the extreme medieval versions where guys were throwing themselves down flights of stairs and wearing hair shirts so that they would itch all day long. And the belief that that would somehow you know, cause them to, to break down and become more spiritual more quickly. No, there will be plenty of time for suffering. And so we don't need to head in that direction. Also, beware of avoidance of suffering. So we don't cause it, we don't seek it, but don't avoid it either. Don't look at it and say, well, you know, I'm going to live my life so conservatively that I'm going to hedge my bets in all circumstances so that I never suffer. Because that's not living, that's not life. And if you spend your time trying to avoid suffering, you'll wind up hardening your heart. You'll have to make your world smaller and smaller and smaller and exclude more and more random variables. Most of those random variables have a name and it's called people. 
And you'll have to exclude them from your life so that you can control everything. And you become broken and alone and bitter. Or some of us turn to mind-numbing substances to help us deal with, to ease the blow of, and the pain of suffering in our lives. Drugs, entertainment, alcohol, whatever it is we look for, we try to find comfort. And what we find is the economy of diminishing returns. The more we turn to it, the the, digger, the bigger the hole that we dig in our lives and it doesn't lead to redemption or, of course, denial where we refuse to accept the, the reality of our circumstances and we decide to live a lie and we reject anything that reminds us of the painful truth of our suffering and our circumstances and we talk to no one about it and we try to convince ourselves it doesn't exist and it just eats us up inside because it makes us even more alone. Finally, I want to point out that God doesn't generally cause suffering. I think that he will at times lead us into situations. He'll ask us to do things that he knows will accompany suffering. But the idea that God's up there looking at you and saying, your outer shell looks like it needs some work, right? and I'm going to send some hammers your way. That's not the character. That's not what a father does lovingly for his children. And like I said before, he really doesn't have to do that. We live in such a crazy, broken environment. So I think God will lead us towards suffering, but not because of the suffering itself, but because of the greater good of what can be accomplished. But we don't need to look at the suffering in our life and say, God, why did you cause this? We need to look at the suffering in our life and say, God, how can you use this? How can I come nearer to you through this? And finally, the last thought is, God has many ways to break us. And suffering is certainly one, but I would want to remind you that often the way that God breaks us the most is through kindness. And in my experience, most of the ways that I've expected God to hammer me down, most of the things, my marriage, my relationship with my teenage children, uh, I expected to be hard. I expected to be broken. And what I found was tremendous blessing so far. So far, what I have to report is God has loved me into brokenness far more than he's hammered me into brokenness. And I am so grateful for that and want to remind you that we shouldn't be looking to God as this eager, with this eager chisel and this eager hammer. What God wants is, as the prodigal father, to welcome us home and to point us in the right direction and to build us up for loving and serving those who don't yet know him. Thank you, God, for the promises of eternity, for the context that you put the suffering of this life in and for um, the way that you move into our lives and give us great hope. Even as it seems like the world crumbles around us, we trust that you are a sovereign, that you are in charge, and that um, things will proceed according to your purposes. We pray, Lord, that as we face suffering in our lives, that we will have the ability to, 
just open up more of our hearts to you and learn and, and, and use those circumstances to depend on you in greater ways so that you can be glorified and so that more people can come to know you. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.